Hey everybody, welcome back to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. Today we pick up from our last episode where we had the privilege to speak with Lieutenant General Yvonne Blandin, who served as commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. The general is now retired, but he was very kind in sharing his thoughts on rising through the ranks, command, leadership, and what it was like to lead the Air Force in what arguably is an extremely political environment. So today we are going to switch tact and we're going to speak about procurement in Canada. There's a number of different programs underway, and the general has a very unique bird's eye perspective on a lot of these issues because he was involved in a lot of the discussions, and clearly his perspective is one that is knowledgeable and credible. So without further ado, let's get back into our chat. So let me ask you this. As commander of the Air Force, what would you have wanted to do that you were either unable to do, or what were some things that you were directed to do that you're like, this doesn't make any sense? Well, let's talk about acquisitions. Perfect. Yeah, let's. About the uh, the, the different uh, replacement of airplanes or... Uh, uh, the Air Force probably has 50% of the uh, the acquisition programs that you've got in the Canadian Forces because, because we need airplanes, we need replacement, the helicopters, you need all kinds of stuff, and it's all about equipment. Right. Well, if it's today, if, if I wanted to say I want a replacement for a new fleet, I need to think 10, 15 years in advance. I'm not going to get a replacement 15 years. The process takes that long. Crazy. Give you an example. Uh, we, we're just going into the request for proposal, the RFP for the UAV for RPAS, the remotely piloted aircraft system. Right. We've started in 2005 to say we need UAVs. We're in 2022. <laughs> I can't help now but laugh, General. <laughs> the, 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 the request for proposal to industry is coming up. Right. And it is based on requirement from 2005. Oh no. Now, and I've looked at the RFP and, and, and you look at the contenders and then actually there are two of them. Mm-hmm. And whether we get either system, it would fill the requirement to perfection and what we need in 2005. When 2022. <laughs> right. If you were to ask me today what I'd want for UAV, it would not be what, what's out there. Interesting. Wow. It would not be okay. that. Mm-hmm. We are now into a new generation of UAVs that can, that can actually fly as part of a network-centric approach. You, right. can, uh, you can fly them as a swarm. You mm-hmm. can have four or five or six of them flying together with a manned platform. That's the stuff I'd like to have today. Yes. Well, this is not what's in the requirement. Right, right, and, and actually, you can't change the uh, the requirement because because it took fifteen years to get there. Oh Lord! Well, I'll take you back to where I was. I was in two thousand thirteen, and I yep. remember a discussion. We're discussing the search and rescue fixed wing platform we need to have. Okay. We have been in that process to get that airplane for thirteen years. Right. And we're getting close to the requirement going out. I just came in. I'm looking at this and I said, oh, man, 
you know what? I, I'm this is this is a priority of the department. This is a a, a high priority of the department. Okay. And they're asking me because I'm supposed to support this. I'm supposed to push this. But I'm at the point where I look at this. I need fixed-wing airplanes to be doing search and rescue, but I need UAVs as well. I'm mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. We don't have UAVs. Right. Uh, we need a replacement for the CP-140. We need a replacement for a CF-18. We need a replacement for the Griffin. So there are priorities out there. Mm-hmm. We just got the uh, the government has just bought us some C-130Js. Right. And we just got some new, brand new C-17s because of Afghanistan. So we, those programs were pushed as a priority. We need those airplanes. It didn't take 15 years. It took two, three years to go through the process. Right, yeah. No competition. Right. The conservatives bought them because we need them for Afghanistan, which, which was great. Mm-hmm. But now I've got lots of C-130Js. And I still have some C-130Hs, older C-130s. Mm-hmm. And I look at the requirement for a search rescue helicopter. And in my mind, I could push that requirement to the right. I could fill the requirement for the search and rescue helicopter, uh, search and rescue fixed wing platform with mm-hmm. airplanes that I have now. Right. For me, my biggest priority would be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Push the UAVs, push something else. And I'm discussing this point with, uh, with other senior people. And uh, I've got people from the, uh, from the department, not necessarily military people, but people from the department, bureaucrats that have been pushing, following that program for 12, 12 13 years. Mm-hmm. And a senior, uh, a senior person in there looked at me and said, don't you dare say this outside of this office. You can't say this. It took 13 years to get here. If you say this, we're not going to move with this program. It's going to be derailed. Derailed for five, 10 years. And I told them, well, and, and I'm at the table and, I, and I'm telling them, yeah, well, that wouldn't bother me. Yeah, I've got exactly. other airplanes that can that can cover that requirement for 10 years right. and do it safely and in a better way. Right. UAVs would help me a lot more. Mm-hmm. I said, no, 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 you can't go there. You can't, you can't say this. You will not do this. But and isn't that your... not to not to rock the boat? But isn't the, that uh... your job, right? Like, I mean, isn't that part of your oh, job? Yeah. Is like... This is the point where, okay, I'm the senior Air Force guy. I look at what we have, what we've got, how much time it takes to do this or do that. I know if I don't push the UAV, it's going to take 15 years. But I've got this one that's coming due. I don't really need it, but it's coming due. So, uh, and the bureaucrats are telling me you can't, you, you can't say what you think, because because now the system needs to uh, needs to come up with this one. And I thought, what a bad way of doing business. Yeah. So the uh, the systems that we get are are based on on requirements from years before, and you're not allowed to adjust it. You're not allowed to sit. You're not allowed to uh, to push for it. The uh, future fighter, I'm hoping we're going to get a fighter eventually. But you wait another 10 years and uh, the F-35 is going to be replaced by a sixth generation airplane. But because we've been in that requirement, we're probably going to get a fifth generation airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, when it I... gets to be stupid for the amount of money we're spending into, into some of those platforms to, to keep on going 
based on a, a system we can't control. And that's, that's what I, uh, uh, killed me the most, the, the acquisition process and what we do and what we don't do uh, because of that. So what is most important? You know, if you were commander of the Air Force today, what is most important for us to acquire? And what also current programs do you think have the wrong direction, you know, because of these programs taking so long? You know, you mentioned RPAS, uh, the remotely piloted aircraft system. Um, you were saying, you know, if it really is not the right requirement for today. Um, I would love your insight on some of those things. Well, certainly on the fighter side, it's a, make a decision. <laughs> buying your plane right <laughs> because because we need fighters right now if you need to take action into ukraine into into a hot spot mm -hmm. i'm sorry but we don't have the uh, the operational force to do this if uh, if we send f-18s with f-30 with american f-35s as part of an operation in russia and ukraine the americans are going to be happy good they're going to say okay uh f-35s please uh, go to the right, F-18, Canadian F-18s, please, all the way to the left, so that all the missiles and all the radars will look to the left because you guys are not invisible. And uh, and and uh, when you get to a certain point, just turn around. Right. You're not coming with us. Right. right. We'll be decoys and that's it. Right. While the real airplanes would be doing the job. F-18s, Canadian F-18s would be more dangerous to coalition airplanes right now, then help. Americans would tell us, stay home. Or if you come, you're gonna be a decoy force. That's it. You'll, <laughs> you'll be a radar dot. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you wouldn't want to send an old airplane like an F-18 against modern Russian airplanes. That would be trying to kill our young. Yeah. So so we, we don't have an operational force. And and if we made the decision today, we're still seven or eight years away from having an operational fighter force. So we're behind the ball into all this. So first thing is make a decision. If you have an air force, if you have a police force for the Arctic, if you want to do something in Canada or outside of Canada, you need a fighter force and you don't have it. Mm -hmm. It needs to be done. I talked about the uh, the RPAS, the remotely piloted aircraft system. Uh, let's talk about the surveillance, uh, our surveillance capability. Mm -hmm. We're counting on a fleet of uh, CP-140s that uh, are 40 years old. 40, you're right. We're, we actually, when I was there in 2003, that's almost 10 years ago, mm -hmm. we were discussing the replacement of the CP-140. And at that time, when I showed up and I was command, new commander of the Air Force in discussions, the P-8 was the, the preferred option. Okay. But so expensive, we didn't have the budget to buy 15 of them to replace the fleet of uh, CP-140s. So the best we could do with the, uh, the money available at the time was uh, buy six or seven. So the discussion at the time, and I remember being part of the discussion because I pushed the point uh, that... It would be better to modernize what we have, the CP-140, mm -hmm. wait 10 years. Mm -hmm. So let's buy 10 years worth of, uh, of, uh, of flying with the, uh, with the old fleet, modernize all the systems. And in 10 years time, we may have more options than the P-8 because the P-8 was the only option at the time. Okay. And at that time, we were looking at options like uh, 
smaller planes, maybe UAVs that can fly as a as a swarm with with the, but it didn't exist at the time. But we thought maybe in ten years' time we could look at that option. Right. Well, we're there now. We're ten years from there, and you know what? Those options exist now. Actually, all in Canada, we have. Dash eight being developed as a maritime patrol airplane. We have the the Bombardier Global Six Thousand uh, being uh, being uh, developed with Saab as a, as a maritime patrol ISR airplane. Those are sharp, smaller, great ISR manned platforms that you could fly with a bunch of UAVs that you could work as a, as a swarm to carry missiles, to carry systems, to carry sensors. But all the technology is there, the systems are there, and we should be looking at this. And we're not, because the requirement we have for the CP140 right now is based on the requirement we had 10, 15 years ago. And, and I bet you that uh, the system has not evolved much uh, from there. So we need to be rethinking this. We need to be updating what we can do and think of not exactly what we wanted 10 years ago, what is available today. It's what's available and we can develop that's gonna be flying 10 years from now and this is what we should be building. And I am convinced that if we were to take that approach in that capability sector, the Maritime Patrol, ISR mm -hmm. and all of this, that Canadian aerospace industry can deliver the most modern system and make it work in Canada. And if there's a place where you need that capability, it's in Canada. We don't have only two oceans, we have a third one. And that third one is becoming more important now and even more with what's happening in Russia. If we're not there to patrol, to know what's happening in, in our Arctic, I guarantee you the Americans will take over and they will be the ones doing it. They will yep. do it for us. So we need, we need to get our facts straight. We need to get our, 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 our shit together and we need to be able to be doing this. So that capability needs to be rethought and we need to be able to, to look at this because again, the way we look at a capability and overall capabilities may be better for a smaller force like us. If you're thinking of swarms of UAVs and a capability like Maritime Patrol, ISR, Defense of the Arctic, well, the same UAVs platforms can actually be what you take with you if you go into a low threat situation like Afghanistan, where you need to support the army with UAVs, with ISR, with airplanes flying on top of you. Mm -hmm. Capabilities that can cross different capabilities. It could be the capability you need for your special ops. When, when they need to go somewhere and they need ISR support and they need high level ISR, that capability could be could be the same capability that's actually cross pollinating the need into uh, from uh, from uh, different capabilities. I don't think we are looking at all of this in in, in that uh, overall aspect and and see how we can uh, we can maximize and renew the capabilities that we need that we can get. Very interesting, and it makes me think, General, about uh, capabilities that I wonder do they even enter the realm of thought let alone trying to actually maybe think hey can we can we um integrate this into uh, a force like the royal canadian air force but where i'm going with this is things like low observable platforms and i'm thinking in the context of even unmanned systems because 
it's one thing to be operating in, uh, you know, over your own territory. Um, but if you want to be able to deploy into potentially harm's way and things like that, should we be looking at systems that are low observable, like any potential unmanned aerial vehicles, um, or certainly fighters? You know, we don't need to go into the debate about fifth gen or not fifth gen, but just in terms of like capabilities, because yes, look at what's happening in Ukraine today and Russia's aggression invading a sovereign country. Um, obviously, China is a near peer potential adversary. So as a modern Air Force, what do we need to be looking at for combat capability, for real capability, not just for operating over your own country? Well, for me, it's, it's not about if you're operating over your own country or not. Um, if you're going to be operating with something and you need weapons on it, mm-hmm. it's because you're going to be shooting at something. Right. If, if you don't need it, if all you need is a police force or, or somebody just to observe or patrol, we can do it with, uh, with King Airs. You can do it with a bunch of other airplanes. You don't need uh, military airplanes. Right. If you're going to need military airplanes, if you're going to need fighters to patrol your north, it's not because it's the best airplane to patrol the north. It's because it has weapons. Right. Because it's telling anybody that can come over that there's a cost at not following what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to enforce a border. We're trying to enforce regulations. Uh, that's the same reason why you have policemen with guns. Sure. If you don't need a gun, just no action, well, that's what's required and that's what you do. But if you're going to use fighters for something and uh, you got weapons, it's because you anticipate that there may be situations when a country like Russia may decide that they're coming over and uh, they, they, they want to enforce a right of passage and decide to go across. And you want to have the option to say, no, you're not coming through and be able for them to look at you and say, well, do I really want to push through because he's got missiles on his wings or not? Now, when you look at the airplanes you need, it's always, and and you said it, it's about survivability and what you're going to be asking your pilots to do. Mm -hmm. If, uh, If you're going to be asking your pilot to go with weapons and maybe use them, whether it's over the Arctic or it's over Ukraine, for me, it's the same thing. I want that pilot to come back. I want that pilot to survive. So I want, if I ask him to go into harm's way, I want him to have the best chance of coming back and survive, to have the upper hand. Right. So th- this is what we do when we, when we recommend uh, recommend airplanes. The, uh, th- there are others who will look at, uh, well, the airplane should be built in Canada, should have this, should have uh, so much content uh, and all this, and they put all those requirements, which is fine. From a military point of view, I want the most survivable. I want the best chance for my pilot to, uh, to, to survive for whatever you're going to ask him, because you're only going to buy one of those fighters for me. And you're going to ask me to go to Ukraine, to go to Afghanistan, to go over the Arctic and face Russians, to go over the Pacific and face uh, Chinese. I don't know. But all, all of this is, and I've got to think for the next 50 years, what can happen? Which situations? Because there's only going to be one fighter airplane you're going to buy. And, and it needs to meet all of these. For me, 
as commander of the Air Force, or even as just as a fighter pilot, if you ask my advice, I'll see, it's my butt, or it's my friend. I want the best available, I want the best chance to survive. I'll go there, boss. I will do it, but give me the best chance to survive. Mm -hmm. You give me the best airplane, I'll fly the best way, I'll manage the risk, but please, don't give me the second best because because that one actually was being built in that part of the country instead of this one because this yeah. is my butt yeah well it, exactly it comes back to what we were talking about from from the get-go it's about the people and empowering the people with the right tools so what about weapons because the current cf-18 has jdams it has guided bomb units gbus it has amram sidewinders um, I know now with the upcoming modernization for the Hornet extension project, they're going to be uh, getting some standoff weapons, the JSAL, which is pretty cool. Um, is there anything that you think that we need that we don't have? Hmm. Actually, it's not, it's not something that we need that we don't have. Uh, it's what we have matches what needs to be done. Mm. what you're asking me to be to do mm -hmm. and do i have all the tools to be controlling this if you're giving me a bomb that i need to release from my airplane that i have the ability to know where that bomb is going to land i am controlling it if i am controlling it, not somebody else it's not like i want to be releasing a bomb from 70 miles away and somebody else is controlling that bomb to the end because in a coalition that somebody else can be somebody from another country that they will not necessarily make the decision you'd want to make right so do i have the control over the weapon and can i achieve what you're asking me to do and i do i agree with this because i'm the man in the middle i need to be part of the decision and uh, and be controlling all of this to the end so as long as i have that and and uh the weapons or the stuff you're asking me to do with it matches your your objective and i don't have a problem with that mm -hmm. for sure you could you could give me a, a nuclear weapon i just wouldn't know what to do with this uh, it would have a lot more capabilities but is that really one what you want to do so as a society we kind of make uh, make decisions on exactly what we're ready to do or not mm -hmm. with violence mm -hmm. we hopefully Take the advice of the specialists, us, the military, to tell you, well, this is the kind of weapons that uh, that we should be using, and this is what we're going to be achieving. And I think it, it achieves what you want to do, and we keep control of this so that we don't go over your objective and uh, and achieve something we would not want to do. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, uh, I am pretty comfortable that we're doing it right in Canada, mm -hmm. and actually in all the uh, the. The operations I've seen uh, in the last 20 years, Canadians have always been in the loop, even though we were part of the coalition, uh, in, in assessing the kind of targets we were going to hit, being able to decide if it was a, uh, a, a, a good target, that no civilians were present, that it was following the letter of what our uh, politician, political masters wanted to do. And be able to do it right i think we did mm -hmm. uh, it worked well hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode 
I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our fantastic sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic provides C4 ISR capabilities for defense, intelligence, security, and commercial missions, and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for U.S. and allied forces. Cubic is a great company who recognize what we're trying to do here at Go Bold, and in supporting us, they are supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion through a small enterprise like ours. So we thank them for their support. Please check them out at cubic.com. Now back to our show. You know, I can't help but think, you know, when we're talking about some of some of the potential adversaries out there, and when I think about China and their growing naval fleet, um, I often wonder about whether, you know, you mentioned that Canada's got three oceans. Um, uh, whether we have anti-ship capability, whether Canada has the anti-ship capability that perhaps it should have. And I've kind of often pondered that to myself hmm. because the cyclone that we have does not have an anti-ship capability. And to my knowledge, I don't know if our F-18s do either. No, we don't. But it's not something that, that concerns me that much because it's something that's easy to, uh, to acquire. If, um, if you want anti-shipping capability, it's not like you're buying new platforms. You can do it with the platforms you have. You right. can do it with the cyclones. You can do it with the F-18s or the future fighter. You just buy the different missiles. You buy the different weapons, different armament. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's, it's a capability that if you feel you need, you can get. It's, it's like uh, the, uh, the actual bonds we needed to go to, uh, to Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, one of those. Uh, we, we, we didn't keep a huge inventory of bombs in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. We had a few. Mm -hmm. But we always counted on, uh, well, if we need more, we'll just buy more from the Americans. They're going to help us uh, with this or buy it from uh, from one of our allies. So there's always some uh, enough of the weapons around uh, in other countries to be able to satisfy the smaller countries like, uh, like Canada or others that uh, did not necessarily keep a huge inventory of weapons and be able to... Uh, so whether you buy bombs or now you decide to go into anti-shipping and now you need a different kind of missile, usually all you need is some, uh, uh, you need to tweak your system so that uh, your, uh, your software can, uh, can manage uh, the new weapons and you buy weapons and uh, you're going to use them. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's very fair. Um, you know, I was thinking in the context of like a cyclone, for sure, I guess you could buy the weapons, but I don't know if the aircraft has the. I know it has a digital backbone. I don't know if it has the, you know, the, the software and what have you. But I, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are of that whole file. But it, it's it, and one of this is not necessarily. Uh, you'd have to have a a bigger study of okay, if I want an anti-shipping capability, it would be okay for what against what. Yeah. If uh, a helicopter is usually tied to a ship. Mm -hmm. which means geographically you have it in a certain point and and uh, even though it can fly faster than the ship it's kind of limited as well in, uh, in, in its radius right. so it may be that uh, your anti-shipping capability is better uh, better concentrated into your uh, fighter airplanes or right. your patrol airplanes like a p8 or something like this mm -hmm. or something else so it, it depends what is 
what you see as a threat and why do you want it to shipping? How do you propose to, uh, to use it? The, uh, on a helicopter, it would be more of a, uh, of a defensive weapon because something is popping up close to the ship and now you're using what you've got uh, to uh, reach a little further with the, with the helicopter. Mm. Uh, so it, it's more of a, uh, of a naval, uh, naval defense. And uh, it'd be a good discussion with the Navy to know, uh, well, is that going to help you if you have it on a helicopter? Would you would prefer to have any shipping missiles on board the ships? If, uh, if the patrolling is done in the Arctic, well, half of the year and in uh, most of the Arctic, you wouldn't be doing it from the ships. So right. helicopters would be pretty much useless if you want to be doing it. Uh, so you'd be using more of a... Uh, of, uh, of an airborne uh, patrolling uh, surveillance capability and maybe defensive capability airborne as well. Mm -hmm. So would that be from uh, from a patrol man patrol airplane, or maybe you want to have your anti shipping uh, being carried by uh, by remotely piloted aircraft by a part of your swarm. So you've got uh, you've got an airplane patrolling and you've got four or five. Uh, uh, ARPA's uh, airplane were following you in a pattern. You're covering 500 miles wide uh, arc. And uh, if you need to use weapons, you've got them on your... Uh, I'm just saying there are different ways of, uh, of, of doing this and it depends where and how you want to use that. Mm, right, absolutely. Well, speaking to that point, um, I'm trying to think of the number of Aurora aircraft Canada currently has, but thinking about the geography of Canada, and how big our country is. You know, you have the Pacific, you have the Atlantic, you have the Arctic. Um, does Canada have the numbers of maritime patrol aircraft that that's required? No. No. <laughs> well, it's it's got it's working with about fourteen or fifteen uh, CP one forty right now, mm -hmm. older, which means uh, you have less of them available mm -hmm. uh, because more of them end up uh, with problems, issues, and all of this. But really, it. In peacetime, it helps you cover the West Coast and East Coast. Occasional trip to the Arctic, just to show a presence, but certainly not a persistent uh, presence in the Arctic. You need a minimum of about 20 platforms that are in good order to be able to do what you would like to do, have a good presence uh, in the North, as well as on the, uh, the East and West Coast. 20 P8 at uh, half a billion dollar each. So you're talking about uh, $10 billion to get a new capability. It's, it's more than your uh, fighter airplanes, uh, the fighter airplanes you need, the F-35, let's say that uh, we think costs so much money. So it's a huge investment. Mm. And this is why I'm saying that uh, we need to open our horizons to something else that may be cheaper, our pass, at uh, you know, you buy uh, you buy a fleet of uh, fifteen or twenty dash eight uh, modified for maritime patrol or global six thousand, and and now you you're not talking half a billion each. You may be talking uh, with all the equipment and all the stuff. You're talking somewhere between fifty and hundred million dollars a piece. So you get twenty of them for what a couple of billion instead of ten billion. Uh, and uh, use a couple of billions to to have a fleet of fifty. RPAS, remotely piloted aircraft systems that you can fire as a, as a swarm. And now you've, uh, you've uh, lowered your cost by, uh, by 60%. You spend 4 billion instead of 10 billion. And uh, I, I, would, uh, I would argue a much better capability in the end 
with the uh, network centric swarm capable bunch of airplanes that can fly all over and mm -hmm. support more than just maritime patrol because you could take them with the army uh, and something like Afghanistan or something else. Yeah, because it's not just maritime patrol, it's obviously the the ISR capability, which is huge now. Everything everything is a is a sensor these days. Yeah, yeah. And uh and we need to uh we are such a big country with a a small population, a small budget. We need to look at new ways of doing that business. Mm. If we want to be to be serious about uh about getting into the Arctic patrolling especially with Russia and China, they're going to be in there in the next 50 years. Yeah. Uh, so speaking about new ways of doing business, uh, you were a fighter pilot and there seems to be a new kind of um, operational construct that seems to be developing in fighter operations. And part of that, I believe, is the, um, the cost of modern fighters. Uh, and where I'm going with this is this whole kind of... Um, shift to having companion fighters. Um, for those that aren't aware of that, General, uh, please share to our listeners, you know, what companion fighters are and why they seem to be becoming more and more prevalent, or, or that that approach seems to be taking hold. Yeah. Well, it's uh, something we worked on in Canada. Uh, when I was commander of the Air Force, we work on a concept because we, at that time, the conservatives were going to buy the F-35. So we were working with the F-35 as the next uh, fighter. Mm -hmm. And of course, expensive airplane, expensive to acquire, expensive to fly, single engine, uh, single cockpit airplane. So you don't have duels. Uh, if you're going to be doing some training, you cannot have an instructor in the back. So you really need to learn how to fly that airplane in a simulator because the first time you're going to go and fly it and take off, you're going to be on your own. Right. Uh, so... A lot more being used in uh, in simulation in the virtual world to support that airplane. So we were looking at all of this, and we 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 thought, you know what? With with Canada being Canada, at that time we were only planning to buy sixty five of them. Sixty five airplanes. We need uh, traditionally we're taking about a quarter of them, a quarter of the fleet to be doing the training, the basic training. When you get a new pilot, you need to teach him how to fly that airplane. Mm -hmm. Well, a quarter of those airplanes are being used for that all the time in Canada with the F eighteen. So we projected with the F thirty five, sixty five airplanes. We need fifteen of them for training. So the operational fleet for the F thirty five was only fifty airplanes. Right. 15 airplanes to do the training, but no dual. So a lot of training doing being done virtually. We we thought, well, if 75% of the training is being done in a simulator, so 25% of the training is being done, that's a that's a departure from where we were before. Mm -hmm. There are some new trainers, jet trainers that uh, every country is using prior to fighter pilots graduating on the big fighter platform. So in Canada, we have a Hawk airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, in the US, they just bought the new T-7, Boeing T-7 airplane. It's a small jet trainer where pilots will learn how to become a fighter pilot. They will right. learn how to use weapons, how to use the systems and all of this. Well, the Hawk airplane in Canada is due for replacement. And three years ago, we thought, okay, with the new generation of fighter trainers, that are much more maneuverable, that have great training technology in this. We can actually do a lot more training to those airplanes. All the training that could not be done on that small platform with the F-18 that 
absolutely had to be done the F-18. Well, now with the new jet, actually a lot of that training could be pushed down to that jet. We call this downloading. So with the new jet trainer, you could download a lot of that training. You could teach pilots to be doing this. With that new jet trainer, you can actually have the cockpit very much similar to the cockpit of your big airplane. You can shape it so that your pilot in a small airplane and actually flies that smaller jet the same way he will fly the next one. So you can teach a lot more into this. You can tweak the performance of the engine, performance of the, uh, the platform or how it flies to mimic the bigger platform. So looking at all this, we thought, man, you know all that basic training we used to do on the F-18? With the F-35, 90% of that can be done on a smaller platform. We can push it down. Wow. So if there's only 10% left on that platform for the fire pilot to learn, hey, we actually don't need a group of airplanes being kept just for that training. Right. We're actually you going to be using the smaller platform to teach them how to fly. And once they're good enough, then we'll send them directly to the squadrons for the first few months. This is when they'll fly for the first time the, uh, the F-35. But it's not going to be hard because they will have learned most of it on the smaller platform. So we thought the training bill is relatively small. We don't need a training squadron anymore. So instead of having 50 operational airplanes, if we have the right small jet trainer, we will have 65 operational airplanes. So at that point, it was a way to, we were increasing the operational fleet by 30%. Yeah. Just by changing the way we train them. But you're also now adopting a new platform and the logistics and support tail that comes with it too. Yes. But we went, we went a step further. Okay. We said, okay, if we can use that small jet for basic training for the fighter pilot, what if we used it longer? There was a concept that was being discussed in the States being discussed in Europe, that was not very popular, but it was a concept. And we looked at it. It was the concept of companion aircraft or surrogate aircraft. It was not a new concept. Actually, in the States, uh, they used T-38 as a, as a companion aircraft to give some flying time to fighter pilots. It was cheaper than to get them to fly the much more expensive uh, fighter airplanes. And sure. we thought, okay, our new pilots, Instead of graduating and going directly to the, uh, to the fighter airplane, what if for a year, just about, on squadron or at their operational base, we had some of those small airplanes and they would be a companion aircraft and the new pilots would be seasoned, get more experience flying those small airplanes for a while before they graduate on the, the bigger airplane. Mm. They could actually do the utility work that needs to be done. Usually, uh, we use our F-18s now. Sometimes we go and exercise with the Army. Mm -hmm. We use as target for the Army. We use as target for the Navy, just because they need a, an air presence into, into a naval exercise. Well, we could use this cheaper airplane to do this. What if we reduce the number of hours on the bigger platform because in that smaller jet, it actually has this, the same cockpit. And every F-35 pilot has already flown that smaller jet, so knows how to fly it, is familiar with this. They could fly a certain number of hours on a smaller jet as well to be flying the enemy aircraft when they do the, uh, the exercise. Right, uh, right, the like red air. Yes. Yeah. 
So the idea of surrogate aircraft was helping in seasoning new pilots, reducing the requirements for hours on a bigger airplane, and actually completing well what we were planning to do with fifth generation airplanes. So we developed that concept and we said, well, that, that would look great. In the meantime, that was five, six, seven years ago. Okay. In the meantime, we started discussing this. The Americans picked up on it. The Europeans picked up on it. Now the, uh, the Americans have developed the concept even further and they're going a, a step farther. They, uh, they are uh, buying uh, T-50s, uh, Korean T-50s to try the concept because they're thinking that surrogate concept could actually work. We could buy four, five, 600 of them, split them with our fighter squadrons, and that would help reduce the load on the bigger platforms, reduce number of hours, and we get better pilots and there would be a better step, better seasoning for our younger pilots before stepping up on the, on the bigger ones. So the concept is moving up. It's mm. picking up speed. The uh, USN is getting on board with this. And now uh, Australia, as part of uh, their, uh, their new fleet, are looking at the concept as well. And uh, they're looking at a new airplane to replace their Hawk as well. Mm-hmm. And they're incorporating the concept of surrogate aircraft into their thinking process and where they want to go. The concept is pushing its way as well in Europe. So I think... Uh, Canada needs to be looking at, uh, at this concept and it would actually be a way to better utilize the much more expensive platforms like the F-35, have pilots that are better prepared to be using them. And in the end, uh, I would submit, we're going to get a better operational capability at less of a cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and- on top of that, I'll offer up another thought, and that is that you could reconstitute the Snowbirds air demonstration team with such an aircraft too. Oh, absolutely. You can use, uh, once you've got that kind of airplanes doing your basic training, that kind of airplane supporting your fighters on your fighter bases, let's say in Cold Lake and Bagotville, you could have the same airplane now flying the, uh, the Snowbirds. It would be much easier to be rotating pilots between the different capabilities because everybody would be familiar with that airplane, have flown it in basic training and be able to fly it. Now you could uh, easily incorporate people from other communities to come in and uh, and learn to fly that airplane because as a modern airplane, it'd be very easy to learn uh, and, and, uh, and fly. So do you think that that is in the realm of the possible in Canada? Um, like you said, we should, you know, we were looking at it, we should be looking at it, but are we agile enough and do we have the appetite to have another type of a fleet in this country beyond our, our operational fighter fleet? Well, what we need to be able to, to do is, again, is be able to step up. And instead of looking for a replacement aircraft for the Snowbirds, and that's a very separate program that needs to go through the authorization process. Mm-hmm. And that, that becomes difficult because it's, well, what kind of airplanes are we going to be using for this? Who is going to be competing and all of this? And because you've got three or four different programs at the same time, a requirement for a training jet, uh, a requirement for a snowbird jet, and maybe a requirement to be a companion aircraft, you can end up actually with our system with three different aircraft because <laughs> you need to have a competition. And now right. you've got logistics with three different fleet, which is... A nightmare. If you could be stepping up and saying, okay, 
I'm going to take those three capabilities and make it part of one capability requirement and be able to say, instead of three different fleets, what I need is one fleet that's going to be, I don't know, 30 airplanes. And this is what I'm going to be doing with the fleet. This is how they're going to be complementing each other, looking at the advantages of actually having the same fleet, how much money you save, how much uh, money you save in logistics and doing all this, how much money you save in training and people because you're operating the same fleet and be able to look at, okay, if I'm doing this, am I actually saving money with the fighters who instead of uh, flying 200 hours per pilot at $25,000 an hour per pilot. But if I've got this concept on, I can reduce it to 120, 100 hours per year. And I'm saving how much money of that F-35 operation and all of this, and be able to look at this as an advantage of uh, doing this fleet. How long, how much longer am I gonna be able to fly those F-35 or new airplanes I'm gonna get if I'm only flying 100 hours a year instead of 200 hours a year? because now I'm not going to need to modernize them after so much time or, uh, or be able to, uh, to change the wings or, or repair fatigue stuff. Uh, how much money do I save into all this? If you're able to put all that together, how much operational capability am I gaining by using those, uh, those uh, surrogate aircraft uh, or, or, or extending my training into the smaller airplane uh, if I'm not using or gaining operational capability, how much less do I need to achieve uh, the, the same goal? If you'd be able to, to look at it from, from a bit higher and put all that together, I tell you that you'd be saving money, you'd have a better operational capability, and you'd be matching all your objectives that you wanna, you wanna be doing. I'm sure of it. It's just very difficult to do it in the system that we have now that is much more comfortable into Putting into a small little box, I need a replacement airplane for the Snowbird. Please deal with this. It is approved or not <laughs> right. and goes through the system. Right. And right. play with separate boxes. The separate boxes model, I don't think works because everything has got to be interoperable. And, you know, it, you have to look at it with a much larger lens, which clearly is is what you are describing. Um, but yeah, if, if procurement is not looking at it that way, then we are going to have inefficiencies. Exactly. Which would be an absolute shame. Yeah, and, and, and in the end, you end up with discussions. Uh, the fact that the Snowbirds have an airplane that's 60 years old is not because we didn't want to replace it before. Mm -hmm. It's because every time we said or wanted to replace it, it was always a hot Political potato. Snowbird replacement. I need to buy 20 airplanes that are going to cost $20 million each. So I need half a billion dollars for that fleet. It brings no operational capability to the RCF. Right. It brings no more defense to Canadians. Right. It's just a way to show the flag. Right. On the other end, Snowbirds are an icon in Canada. Yes. Very, very difficult to get rid of. I right. remember in budget discussions in the 90s, in the 2000 era, when this, the, the budgets were being reduced, mm -hmm. where the RCF offered up and said, we can cancel the snowbirds. Mm -hmm. The politicians said, no, we need the snowbirds. 
and actually it's, it's Canadian saying you cannot get rid of snowbirds. So on one side, you can't get rid of snowbirds. On the other side, it's not an operational capability and it costs a lot of money and you try to reconcile all of that. And every time we try to bring it forward to say, well, make up your mind. If you mm -hmm. want to keep it, this is how much it costs to replace it. Mm -hmm. And no politician wants to go to the bat and say, okay, we're going to be spending half a billion dollars for an airplane that brings no capability to Canadians. I have to justify that and be attacked by the opposition. So it's always been pushed to the right. So this is where we are. Now, if you make your requirement for the snowbirds, actually a bunch of airplanes that are back up when you're going to be losing training airplanes. Part of a fleet that is supporting your operational requirement in Baggettville and Cold Lake that are interoperable. Your pilots that will go on the front line actually can have some time when they're not in the front line and can be doing some duty PR with the snowbirds to show the flag. When you're able to, to incorporate that requirement into something else, now it becomes something else than just that little box that is difficult that you cannot push politically or, or monetarily because, because it's hot, because it's going to become a political issue. Mm -hmm. When are we going to get there? Very difficult. And we should get there. Like, I mean, this, this, this should have been decided a long time ago, in my opinion, um, at least in the context of incorporating that requirement into future fighter lead in trainer or, uh, or even maybe fact future crew training. You know, why not all of them? Yes. This is where it was before, and it's been split on the side uh, when we went from the tutors to something else. And actually, if, uh, if you could uh, go a step further and uh, uh, inject industry into all this, why not have industry into the snowbirds? Why not have industry sponsoring some of what's being done with the snowbirds? You know what? With fact, the airplane is going to be owned by somebody else in the RCF. It's right. going to be industry providing the airplanes. Right. Well, for future flip, there's nothing that precludes going the same way and have industry providing the airplanes for the RCF to, to use it. The RCF pays for, for the use, but, but it's there. Mm -hmm. But the industry can be part of what's uh, part of all this and providing more airplanes for the snowbirds and have the industry be part of the sponsorship of what the snowbirds are doing get the industry to be part of, uh, of what the, uh, the RCF is, is doing and maybe gain some visibility out of what the, the, uh, the snowbirds are doing. Do you think that that would be something that a politician would embrace being that the snowbirds are such an iconic ambassador of Canada that they would have a company associated to it? Well, what I'm saying is not necessarily a company. Okay. When I talk about sponsorship, I'm talking about industry. Industry writ large, right. Okay, gotcha. Industry at large. Yeah. Industry is all part of your aerospace uh, association. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, why wouldn't you get your, uh, your industry to, to pay a little more into that association? And actually, that, that association, Canadian industry, as a name, becomes part of the sponsorship into what the snowbirds are doing. So when the snowbirds go somewhere... Uh, yes, they will always be representing RCF, but they already represent much more than this. They represent the Canadian Armed Forces. They represent Canada. Right. They represent right. our flag. Well, what if we put part of this package, they represent 
Canadian industry. Yeah. Yeah, Canadian I'm not saying industry. even if they fly a Boeing airplane, mm-hmm. uh, or even if the contract to provide those airplanes is given to, let's say, uh, Skyline, mm-hmm. uh, it's not sponsored by Skyline. It's not sponsored by Boeing. It's not sponsored by a company specific. It's sponsored by Canadian industry. Right. And Canadian right. industry take some ownership of of what the Snowbird represent. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm just throwing that like this. I, I'm just saying that. We should be thinking outside of the box with some of the capabilities and what we're trying to build and how we built them so that we're achieving more, we're getting what we need in the end. It's representing what the RCF or the people doing it really need and want. Mm-hmm. And actually we're doing it at the best cost possible. And if we're helping some people, some industry at the same time, well, so be it, that would be great. Totally. Oh, I, I, I agree 100% uh general with with that sentiment uh or in that that perspective we hope you are enjoying this episode of the go bold podcast please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics now back to our show one thing that i was going to ask you and that was uh, base closures Base closures is, is not a new subject. Uh, actually, in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s, when we reduced the forces and we brought back uh, airplanes from Europe, mm-hmm. we actually closed bases in, uh, in Germany. Right. It yeah. was a reduction. Yeah. We reduced bases in Canada. We closed Chatham. We closed Summerside. So that was a period where we closed base. But every time you close a base, you don't just close base you actually close a portion of a community. Yes. So you're not affecting just military, you need to post somewhere else. You've mm-hmm. got civilians working there that will lose their job. Mm-hmm. You've got money being infused by the federal government to that community that will disappear. So mm-hmm. you can actually hurt communities along. Every time you want to discuss closing a base, you can't do it inside the department without involving the communities around. And as soon as you involve the communities, the politicians get involved. Mm-hmm. And since you're not going to be doing this over a year or two, it takes time to be doing all this. It is invariably an election issue for the local MPs. Right. So the local MPs, you will have maybe the one representing the government that wants to close the base. I will say we need to close the base, but it's not going to be popular in that uh, in this writing. No. And you, you're going to have the other two or three uh, uh, candidates from other parties who will say, never close the base. I will <laughs> fight this to the death. And they will win the election in this writing. Right. So they're going to be the ones representing this. Yeah. So it, it, does, it does a couple of things. One, before there's a discussion about closing a base, the local MP, if he's part of the government, will, 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 will talk against it. Mm-hmm. And will say why you can't do this. And depending on where the government is in, uh, in numbers, well, all this to say that it's, uh, it's part of, uh, of, of the political machinations into how you do things. You cannot just close the base without having an effect on your politicians. But for the Air Force, uh, and I'm talking about the Air Force, it could be Army and Navy, but I was part of the Air Force. Uh, an Air Force reduced in the number we were in the 90s, 2000s. Mm-hmm. We still kept... 12 wings and uh, a couple of stations. Uh, 
which in number was way too much for what we actually needed operationally. But you just could not close all the bases that we, independently of everything else, would have liked to close to be more efficient. Right. So there are a few bases through the years that were discussed into what we do. A place like uh, North Bay, which was an active air base with, uh, with squadrons uh, flying out of North Bay, mm-hmm. that uh, was reduced to non-flying status. Uh, squadrons closed out of it, but the base was not closed and we kept the presence because North Bay was a community that uh, was uh, actively fought against closing the base and eventually got their point across. The base was kept alive. Mm-hmm. Now, for a number of people that we kept there, it was not necessarily the most efficient way of doing this. A place like Goose Bay, a small community mm-hmm. in the north of, uh, of, of Labrador mm-hmm. with a big base. It was a, a big allied base when the Americans were part of it and they paid for most of uh, the infrastructure was built uh, over there. Mm-hmm. When the Europeans came to Goose Bay to train, it was a, a very useful base. In the uh, 90s, when every country reduced their operation, everybody pulled out of Goose Bay. The only ones left in Goose Bay were the Canadians, who were only the infrastructure caretakers for everybody else to be flying out of. But when everybody else flew out, the infrastructure (laughs) was left there. The community was depending on Goose Bay being an air base and having all the traffic and all of that. The government could not close it. They did not close it. Even we with kept no traffic. Goose Bay open, even mm-hmm. though for the RCF, we did not need it. Right. We had no units in there. Right. I remember being part of a discussion in Ottawa as to, okay, we need to keep Goose Bay open. So which capabilities can you send over there? Air Force, Navy, Army. What can you send in Goose Bay so that we can actually say that we're keeping it open because we're doing something there. Mm-hmm. So we, we send token units. The Air Force sent a squadron of Griffins, very small unit. And we said, okay, well, it's going to be for search and rescue. You're going to be part of the search and rescue system. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was not it was not a place if in, if Goose Bay did not exist and we had to, to, to place search and rescue assets, it would not have been in Goose Bay. We placed it there because we needed to have something there to keep the base open so that Goose Bay would keep... Stay alive. Yes. So I understand why we do this. Uh, I I just didn't like being... uh, Having to say that, uh, well, yes, I, I, I need units. I'm sending units. Uh, telling people that we posted there, telling them that they're useful because they were not. Mm. And we had to promise them a day in and promise them the date they were coming out in order to get them to go there. And the fact that people who went there, one with their family had a great time. If you love skidooing, uh, fishing and all of this, but it's not where you're going to do something very useful for the, uh, for the Air Force. Right. So there are some bases that uh, if we would not have been uh, part of political uh, discussions, we, we would have closed as an Air Force, wow. but that the government kept open for the community. Which on one hand for the community, yes, I, I understand that reasoning, but 
the Air Force's job is not to keep a base open for a community. Uh, no, and, and I wouldn't mind if my government is subsidizing a community, subsidizing an airport in Goose Bay, and, and you send people there to keep the airport open, to maintain facilities. But if you're going to be sending military people to do this, and you're already limiting the number of people in uniform to be, uh, to be doing the jobs you need, well, it kind of limits, uh, it doesn't help the Air Force, certainly. From an Air Force perspective, it was not seen as the best move or best way of achieving the government objective. It seemed to me more of a way to hide the fact that we're going to be subsidizing the community by saying it's, it's actually an Air Force base, which actually was not required. So if you had... Um... You know, if you factored out the the necessity or, or I guess the desire to keep a community alive, which ones would you have closed or would you still close? Well, certainly uh, Goose Bay doesn't need to be there as a military presence. Right. Uh, it, uh, I, 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 I do not deny the, the need to have an airport to support the community. Uh, overall, that's a government decision to be doing this. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it should be using the Air Force or military assets to be uh, to be doing this. It's uh, it, it it doesn't help uh, your military objectives. So Goose Bay uh, could easily close. Uh, there was a time when North Bay, because they had the underground structure and all of this, was useful place. It's not anymore. We're not using the underground structures anymore. Uh, everything is above ground. Uh, it's it's a nod. It's a communication nod. It's a control uh, for the for NORAD. You could easily close all of this and uh, repatriate and put all this in Winnipeg. You don't need to have two separate locations to be doing that function. You can you can increase what you've got in Winnipeg and be uh, and be getting rid of uh, of what you're doing there. I think we've done some uh, some good stuff with uh, with reducing what we. Uh, what we do in uh, Shearwater. I think the rest of the bases are okay. Uh, I, I think uh, there's a requirement to have, uh, to have some of the bases in, in the prairies. I don't uh, deny that geographically, you need, uh, you need to spread. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, Goose Bay and Norway are probably the two places that uh, if uh, it wasn't political could, uh, could actually help the Air Force by- uh, By shutting by, down. Yeah, yep. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective, General. I think that's, again, it's honest. So if you were to say, hey, there's one thing that we do not have that we need, aside from our past, because we've talked about that, is there any type of capability that Canada really needs that we either have divested of or that we never had that we should have? Well, you know what, as, uh, I think our, our frame of mind uh, in last uh, 25 years in Canada has always been, whatever we do, we're going to be part of a coalition. Right. We're not going to be doing anything on our own. Right. So uh, we don't need all the capabilities. Mm -hmm. So let's concentrate on some key capabilities that we absolutely need and make sure we have them. We need fighters, we need transport, we need helicopters to support uh, our army. We need uh, helicopters to support our Navy. We need some uh, maritime patrol. We need some search and rescue. And we said, okay, Let's have that and we can cover most of it. If we go into a big operation, we have refuelers or just a few of them, it's okay because others will have them. We don't need AWACS because others will have them, which is fine as long as you're part of a coalition. 
And, and maybe that's the way we want to do, but that's a choice. If we do this, we're only buying and ensuring that we've got some capabilities and we, we are well covered with those capabilities. That's a choice we made for oh, 25, I'd say the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I wouldn't say we're missing a capability as long as we're conscious of that. And this is a conscious choice we want. If we're serious about the Arctic, if we're going to be flying out there, we're going to be operating out there. We have two choices. We are confident that our American partners are always going to be there. We're always going to agree with them. We're going to be great partners and they're going to be providing the refuelers and the AWACS we need to control airplanes. If we keep on going that way, that's fine, but we're stuck into this. We're locked into it. We save the money. We don't need to invest in those capabilities but we're locked into it. Right. If, uh, if ever we have some issues with the US and, and it, it's, been, uh, it's been sensitive in the last few years, especially mm -hmm. with President Trump. Mm -hmm. But where are the US gonna be in 10 years? What are they gonna be doing? Are they always gonna be so friendly with us? Are we always gonna be so friendly with them? Right. The Arctic is a great issue for Canada. It's a, it's a strategic issue, strategic point for Canada, but it is for the US as well. Yes, it is. If we're not there controlling things, if we're not doing it, the US will do it. If we are there on our own and we rely on the US to provide all the intelligence, to control the uh, uh, the ways to operate, because if you don't have refuelers out there, you can't operate. Right. If the U.S. decide that we're not operating there anymore, we will not, as long as they keep control of those capabilities. So I, I'm not saying we absolutely need them. We need them, but it's certainly something we need to consider. In the future, do we want to rely on somebody else for our security in the North for such a strategic piece of the world? Mm -hmm. Um, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. But looking at uh, the last five years, I, I don't know where we're going to be in, in 10 years. But I'm concerned. I think I share your concern. Um, I recalled back when we had issues getting N95 masks during the COVID pandemic from the U.S. And no fault of the U.S., they were looking after their own populace and they needed the mass there. And they were like, well, us first. And I completely understand that. Um, but that's just one small little example of something that happened where we were reliant on, the, on them for masks. So now, yes, you're absolutely right. You don't know how things will go in the future. And I have also thought about those two capabilities, airborne early warning and control. We don't have that and uh, an air refueling capability, which is very limited. Um, you know, I know that there's a strategic transport tanker capability project. Um, I hope we get enough of those aircraft, um, but airborne early warning and control, you know, there, there's aircraft out there. You mentioned the Global 6000 earlier. Um, there's countries out there that have been able to develop airborne early warning and control aircraft on similar size aircraft. 
um, Saab, for example, with a with a Bombardier product. So we have the capacity to have it in Canada and have it be a Canadian solution. Absolutely. We have the capability, we have the means. And if we were to step away and look again at the overall requirement and look at a different way to approach it, it would not necessarily cost more. You can do it differently. You can do it for the same cost. You can have a better capability. You can have a better Canadian presence. And it would actually be great for Canadian industry. But it would mean uh, strategically to review where we're going, why we're going there, what are we trying to achieve? What are the requirements? How could they be achieved? And it's different than what we have now. We need to step away from that 15-year window of the requirement. And what I'm getting is what I needed 15 years ago. And when I'm developing, I'm not going to get another 15, 20 years because you're locked into it and nobody's pushing you. Nobody is is taking you to the, the point where, okay, forget about all this. And if you had a clean slate, how would you do it? What would you want to have 10 years from now? I am too stuck into what my predecessors have decided we needed to have. Right. This is where I was as commander of the Air Force. Mm. And I could not inject, this is not what I need. Mm. I could do something else. And being told, shut up. Do not rock the boat. We're just about to get what we wanted 15 years ago. So just take it. This is what we're doing. And we're not encouraging thinking differently and being able to say, stop. Let's look at what I need. Let's look at the best way to get there. And, and, and this is what I need. This is what I want. And be able to say it. What a shame. What an absolute shame. Because if we continue that path, that essentially means you're getting a capability that is dated and not relevant. Well, you're certainly not going to consider what that Montreal company is doing with uh, with their their new uh, uh, the the Icarus uh, Wasp and Brenta. You you cannot consider this because because I've got RPAS that was developed 15 years ago, and sorry, this is what I'm going to get, and I can't consider that because because I'm just about to get something. So I'm going to get a UAV that I needed 15 years ago. That's going to be useless to me in the Arctic in 15, 20 years. Wow. You know, uh, General, I think if there is a if there is a, a point to conclude this this conversation on, that's the one. <laughs> because because it yeah, I find that that uh, that statement uh, very candid and uh, and somewhat alarming too <laughs> and that is a shame <laughs> it's an absolute yes. shame well Jyoti you know me I give you my opinions and I have to tell you that those are my opinions of course they're yes. not necessarily shared by by other people in the RCF or I, I, outside but you wanted to know what I think I've been in this world for 35 years I've seen operations I've seen Headquarters, I've seen politics. So you got my opinions. And you know what? I've always known you to be honest, General. So to me, 
your perspective and your insight um, speaks volumes. And I hope people uh, appreciate it. And I hope people enjoyed hearing this chat because it is, uh, it is fascinating. And it is a unique perspective that only comes from somebody who has been commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. So um, I thank you. General Blondin for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure as always. And uh, I look forward to our next chat because I think there's more to talk about. Jyoti, I am retired. So all I have is time now. So <laughs> call back and thank you. It was great chatting with you again. Thank you, sir. I, I will call back and uh, I wish you all the best. General Blondin. Uh, that my friends was General Yvonne Blondin former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. If you have any questions for us, please reach out to gobolddepodcast at gmail.com. And if you have any questions for General Blondin, uh, if we get enough of them together, uh, we'll present them to him and see if he'll be kind enough to answer. Uh, thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this chat. And as always, I'd like to thank Cubit Corporation for their kind support. Thank you. Hope you will join us for another episode of Go Bold. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>